Hello again, this is Pastor Ed Collins with North Christian Church. This is part two of Grace Under Fire. Let's open up with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this ability to gather together in this unique way, Father, to fellowship this way, to break bread this way, Father. Thank you for your grace which is really an expression of your unerring love for us, Father. Thank you so much for reminding us of how much you love us. Thank you for giving us messages like this one so that we can be built up and encouraged and comforted in whatever trials and tribulations that you've promised we will be going through, Father. We're just so grateful for your grace. Thank you. We pray for those in the congregation that are still ill, Father, that you heal them in your good timing, of course, that you you comfort them and that maybe as a means of grace, as instrumentation of righteousness, we might be used to your glory, Father, as individuals. We pray also, Father, for those in the world that are still lost and without hope, that you humble them, that they be humbled, that they receive saving faith, Father, before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a time like this such a wonderful time to rejoice, Father. We just pray for this message that it be edifying for our souls we ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this is part two of Grace Under Fire. Uh, between our most recent blog and Sunday's message, the Spirit's given us a lot to think about in terms of grace. And as I've taught this congregation so many times in the past, grace is among the most perverted definitions this world has ever known. Why? Well, for starters, Satan doesn't want any of us to truly understand the nature of God's grace. Because, you know, that means deliverance on the spot and in any circumstance. That's the beauty of grace. Satan does not want any of us to truly understand the nature of it because it means deliverance for us on the spot and in any circumstance. And that brings glory to God. Let me just get this first principle on the table right away up here on the board, the fruit of grace. If there are circumstances in your life that you are still in bondage to, somewhere along the line, you've not received grace the way you ought to. You've either, who knows, missed it, rejected it, misunderstood it, whatever the case may be. If there are circumstances in your life that you are still in bondage to, somewhere, somehow, along the line, you've not received grace the way you ought to. Otherwise, you would be delivered. You need to give this point on the board some deep thought. And remember, when I say delivered, it doesn't mean that you're going to be removed from a situation. It means you're going to be delivered between your two ears. It means it's going to be delivered in a way that matters. Remember what Paul said, I've learned to get along in any circumstance, whether I'm with or without. It's not the point. God's grace is sufficient. Again, you need to give this point on the board some deep thought. If it confuses you in any way, Please spend time with it until you understand exactly what the Spirit's trying to say to you. If after going through this exercise, you still struggle with it, please, it's an open invitation. Please reach out to me and I'll help you understand it. With that said, let's do a, a quick survey on grace since the Spirit brought up the idea that our definitions might become perverted, and that is a surefire way of not being delivered. Let's do a quick survey on grace, beginning with Paul's treatise 
on how God's grace meets us at the three phases of sanctification. In other words, every step of the way, positionally, experientially, ultimately, God's grace meets us. Go to Titus 2, verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. Again, we're just going to do a brief survey on the topic of grace, just so that we can get it right in our souls, that we can situate ourselves for this message. Again, Titus 2, verse 11. And a, and a nice thing here is that Paul writes about all three phases of sanctification, using grace as the means. Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's a reference to positional sanctification or the penalty of sin. In other words, we're delivered, we're saved from the penalty of sin. That's positional sanctification. For the grace of God, see? It's by the grace of God. First phase, bringing salvation for all people. That's deliverance from the penalty of sin. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That means phase two of sanctification or experiential, as the, some theologians say, of progressive sanctification. That's us now as believers. That means that by grace, we're delivered from the power of sin. That's what experiential sanctification is, being delivered from the power of sin. Verse 13, <clears throat> waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a reference to phase three, or what we would call theologically ultimate sanctification. And that's deliverance from the very presence of sin. So it's deliverance from the penalty, then the power, and then the presence of sin. And that's verses 11, 12, and 13. Again, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So that's a really nice entree, if you would, into the topic of grace because it covers all three phases of sanctification. Consider also the following for a more practical perspective up here on the board. Romans 11.6, but it is by grace, and this is more focused obviously on the experiential, the here and now, the practical sense what we're really after, even in a message like this one. Romans 11.6, but it, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And couple that with 2 Corinthians 12.9, part A. But he said to me, Paul writing this, my grace is sufficient for you. Speaking about the Lord. The Lord told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. As I was choosing which scripture to use for this message, one passage in particular jumped out as a sort of summary for this in our most recent messages. Let's read it together now, and as we do, Think about what the Spirit's been saying to this church lately, not just the last three messages, but lately. I mean, as a, as a general theme, there's going to be several themes, actually, that we've been noting over the past few months or even the last year that are woven into this one passage. Go to 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Paul writes to Timothy here, again in 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. But this passage, this chapter even, it reads almost like a summary. 2 Timothy 2, 1. You then, my child, be strengthened. How? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's how we're strengthened, by the grace of God. If we, in arrogance, try to strengthen ourselves or be self-righteous, that's when we become exhausted. That's when we're weak. So then, my child, be strengthened 
by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's speaking to also uh, elders in a church or, you know, uh, pastors. Verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of, G of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Again, there's grace. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. I love that. What a wonderful statement, huh? But the word of God is not bound. You cannot chain that thing down. Verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for... If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. We had a slice of this this past week. Verse 15, do not best, <clears throat> do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. We had a slice of this as well. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some of honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. This is what sanctification looks like, remember. Useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, practically speaking, he says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the, on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. We had uh, a warning from the Spirit on that as well. Ignorant controversies. A lot of the conspiracy theorists nowadays specialize in ignorant controversies. You know that, what does that breed? They breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. I, I hope, I do hope uh, you saw so much of what we've been learning recently. It's all stuffed in there. It's all woven together beautifully by Paul. As mentioned earlier, this passage reads like a summary of our recent messages and even our blogs, which is awesome. Okay, back to the instigating principle, though, from the start of this message. Up here on the board, the fruit of grace. So much of what we just read in that passage was about grace. 
If there are circumstances, so let's apply it to ourselves. If there are circumstances in your life that you are still in bondage to, somewhere along the line, you've not received grace the way you ought to. You're not, you're, you're frustrating your own experiential phase two, if you would, sanctification because you've either missed it, you've flat out rejected it, or maybe you've even misunderstood it. But the point is that if these, if this bondage exists in your life, somewhere you've been disconnected from the grace of God because God's grace is sufficient. And Isaiah 55, 11 says it never comes back empty handed, which means it's efficacious. It means it's purely and utterly effective. So something's awry. So just think about this. Believers are like diamonds in the rough. We're meant to shine brightly, right? We're supposed to be shining. Now is our moment even. Times of uh, tribulation, times where the folks around us are struggling. These are our times to shine. Go to Matthew 5.14. Matthew 5.14. And this shining really is fruit of grace. God gives us the ability to overcome. God gives us the ability to meet challenges head on. God gives us the ability to be content in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. These are all grace gifts from God. Matthew 5.14, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Think about that. You are the light of the world. Then why don't we shine under certain times in our lives? I mean, why don't we, like a diamond, cut through whatever's trying to cover up the light that's in us? Well, we just saw that Jesus himself said our light, his light, cannot be hidden, right? In other words, his light cannot be extinguished from anyone or anything on the outside. So what does that leave us? That leaves us with us. It, it leaves our part on the table. We can and we do often douse our own lights from within. And as I mentioned earlier, this is analogous to the word being unstoppable, Isaiah 55, 11, but yet we can hinder its intended progress by means of our own free will. Our job, as the Spirit's been highlighting lately, is to shine the way Christ shined during his time on earth, by grace. That's how we shine. It's by grace. And the Bible teaches us that we have every ability to shine like him as believers. And we are encouraged to do so throughout the entire New Testament. Read it. You'll see it. And yet we struggle we are often dim. Again, the point on the board, the fruit of grace, if there are circumstances in your life that you are still in bondage to, somewhere along the line, you've not received grace the way you ought to. You either missed it, rejected it, or maybe misunderstood it. To echo Paul's words up here in the board, 2 Timothy 2.1, then, then you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, Satan does not want you to understand what Paul wrote here. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That sounds really encouraging, doesn't it? It sure does. Satan does not want you to understand what Paul was writing about. Nor does he want you to understand what the Spirit's teaching you right now. Think of it this way. This is warfare, in case you've forgotten. And the word of truth is the sword that cuts through all the schemes of the devil. That's why we call it grace. Go to uh, Hebrews 4, 12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. That we're in a war, folks. I think sometimes we forget about it. We get myopic, let's call it, nearsighted. We, we focus on the, the things that are around us, the things here on earth, the, the tribulations that we're going through. And we lose sight of the fact that we're part of an invisible war 
a war that's waged long before we were ever born even. Hebrews 4.12, though, gives us, by grace, the ability to cut through all that and see, see it all as truth. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. In other words, there's nothing it can't get to. It's, there's nothing it can't divide for our discernment and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the value of the word. Now just imagine having that thing in you at the ready as a sword that can cut through it all. Satan does not want you to have the word of God in your soul. Being given the word of God is among the greatest grace gifts of all because it grants us a greater grace as we, you know, take it in over time. One more time before we press on here, up here on the board, the fruit of grace. If there are circumstances in your life that you are still in bondage to somewhere along the line, you've not received grace the way you ought to. I don't know, maybe that, as we studied recently, maybe that bondage is fear. And it's the kind of fear that's maybe a lot more covert than overt, as I taught on Sunday. And may I suggest, by the way, that all of you part, all of you take the time to read this book on our website, Covert Arrogance, Hiding Out in Plain Sight. It's, it's a book. It's not the longest book in the world, but it's readable and downloadable on nccdighton.org. It's been there for years now. It's a perfect time to read this thing. It's exactly what the Spirit's been talking about. I'd argue that Covert arrogance is the malady that keeps a lot of people in bondage to their own flesh, even well-intentioned believers. Covert arrogance is difficult to identify, even in ourselves. Remember this also as you give this further consideration up here on the board. Covert arrogance, you are going to get zero help from your flesh or enemy or any enemy of Christ in discovering areas of covert arrogance in yourself. For this is one of the flesh's strongholds and the very means it continues to have influence over you. Your enemy is not going to give itself up, in other words. It's not going to even reveal itself willingly. So when it comes to covert arrogance, you're going to get zero help from your flesh or any enemy. The world's not going to point it out, nor is Satan. No enemy of Christ is going to point it out. You're not going to get any help from your enemies in discovering areas of covert arrogance in yourself. For this is one of the flesh's strongholds and the very means it continues to have influence over you. This means that if you want deliverance from bondage, that from God's perspective you've already been delivered from, then it's going to take focus and prayer. Focus and prayer. Go to Jeremiah 29, verse 11. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. If you want deliverance from bondage, from God's perspective, you've already been delivered from, you know, then it's going to take focus and prayer because there's a disconnect. If God says, I've already delivered you from that stuff, what's the problem you have to ask yourself? It's going to take focus and prayer. Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. Get this, when you seek me with all your heart. Uh, some of you should get this tattooed on your body somewhere, Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. When will seeking result in finding? When we seek with all of our hearts. In other words, the haphazard, often flippant way that we seek the Lord is like akin to sleeping on the job. <laughs> After salvation, we have a job to do. We've been 
We've been recruited into Christ's army, so to speak. So this flippant attitude about what the Spirit's teaching here even, it's like sleeping on the job. God has promised every one of his children success. In fact, as we noted recently, he proclaims to own our success by means of grace. However, if God gives you, let's say, good weather, a solid foundation, building materials, and all the necessary tools to build something, but you make a practice of sleeping on the job while the boss is away, what is it that you expect? Really, what do you expect sleeping on the job? Again, God says his grace is sufficient, right? It is efficacious, as we like to say in theology land, meaning it is perfectly effective. So the only variable left is you. And what did Jeremiah 29, 13 just say? You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I want to read an old friend now, shall we? And just as a side note, I hope you haven't lost sight of the, the big picture here that bondage for a believer is antithetical to grace. That's been that theme from the start of this message, that bondage for a believer is, an, is antithetical, antithetical to grace. Somehow we're missing grace if we're still in bondage, in other words. So please keep that big picture in mind here, my friends. The Spirit's got good reason to keep digging into this receiving aspect of grace. All right, let's read our passage now. Go to Luke 11, verse 5. Luke 11, verse 5. I love this. I love this parable because, not just because it was Jesus, but because it's so very encouraging. It encourages us to be persistent. Luke 11, verse 5. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Up here on the board, you know what? Persistence wins. So says the word of God. Persistence wins. Keep going. Listen. Keep going to the throne of grace for answers, a la Hebrews 4.16. Keep going to the throne of grace for answers. God will either answer your prayers or change them. He's either going to do one or the other. He's going to either answer your prayers straight up and say yes or no, or he's going to say, you're not even praying for the right stuff. You need to change your prayers. He's going to convince you otherwise. Either way, you will be delivered. That's the point. And that's grace. Doesn't mean you get what you want. That's that perversion of grace that we studied, oh, I don't know, a year or two ago, right? That, that grace is that thing that is accommodating to man's flesh. That is complete garbage and a whole other story. I'll leave that to your own investigation looking back on our uh, previous series a year, a year or two ago. Again, God will either answer your prayers or change them. Either way, you will be delivered. That's the point. Again, I alluded to this before. Doesn't mean he's going to change your circumstances. It's that you get delivered where it counts. Again, look at verse 8. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, but yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Remember, I gave you the original language. I think it might even have been the Amplified translation that added persistently to each one of those verbs. Knock persistently, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. 
Again, persistence wins up here on the board. Keep going to the throne of grace for answers. God will either answer your prayers or change them. Either way, the good news, you will be delivered. Just be persistent. You may, it may not be deliverance in the way you thought you'd be delivered. I mean, how many people, how many can say that, right? It may not be how you thought he would deliver you, but he promises to deliver you. And that's the beauty of grace. All right, so we've got two very large principles, if you've noticed. Maybe they're just hanging out there for you in your own brain right now. But we've got two very large principles on the table right now that we need to synthesize. We need to make them fit with each other. The first is on the board. Uh, the second is regarding the fruit of grace. As we've been noting, if there are circumstances in our lives that we're still in bondage to something and somewhere along the line, we've not received grace the way we ought to. But yet again, the Bible tells us to keep going to the throne of grace. So our conclusion, our synthesis results in the point on the board by grace through faith if we are in bondage we seek grace by faith in other words we trust him that's like step numero uno we trust him god loves when we go directly to him for deliverance why he's glorified look at it says in james 4 6 but he gives more grace therefore it says god God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Yeah. If we're in bondage, we seek grace by faith. We trust him, so therefore we go to him. And God loves when we go directly to him for deliverance because he is glorified. So what do you think he's going to do? That, that movement to him is a, is a uh, evidence of humility. So what does he do for the humble? He gives them grace. Matter of fact, James said he gives even greater grace. He gives more grace to that person. So there we have our synthesized conclusion. As is always the case, the next step is to, you know, practice using or applying it to our lives. The Spirit never lets us just rest on our laurels. In typical format, of course, the Spirit now wishes for us to invest, investigate what the implications of this awesome principle on the board are. In other words, it's time to get practical. Brass tacks, right? So here's our segue into this portion of our message up here on the board. Jesus never feared. This came out uh, on Sunday. Jesus never feared because he had perfect faith. Instead of fear, he had perfect peace. He wants us to have this. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Talk about grace. That's John 14, 27. Talk about grace. And who lived by means of grace more perfectly than Jesus Christ? The answer, of course, is no one. So he's a perfect prototype. Jesus never feared because he had perfect faith. Instead of fear, he had perfect peace. And he wants us to have this peace. He said, my peace I leave with you. Step back for a moment. Fear is a form of bondage. Who was more free or freer than Jesus Christ? The answer again is no one. Fear is a form of bondage. Jesus had zero bondage. Instead, he had perfect peace. Fear is a form of bondage certainly among the most common results of a lack of faith. Here's the primary principle from Sunday's message on this topic up here on the board, by grace through faith versus fear. In other words, that, that sphere of grace, we, some call it grace orientation, even, even just understanding or abiding in the sphere of grace by faith or through faith versus fear. Faith is a grace gift. During a crisis, a person with faith isn't hysterical because they trust in God's promises to protect them, nor are they Gnostics opposing to be in the know because they trust their ignorance is by design a God-given estate. The point, though, the key point is that faith produces peace. Lack of it produces fear that leads to folly. Faith produces peace. Lack of it produces fear 
that leads to folly by grace through faith. The secondary principle from last message was this, the fruit of arrogance. An arrogant person will always find themselves estranged from the peace of God. Jesus was perfectly humble. He had perfect peace. An arrogant person is the other end of the spectrum, the polar opposite. An arrogant person will always find themselves estranged from the peace of God. Whether it's hysterical or agnostic, it doesn't matter. But again, the key point, this estrangement results in fear. And the final principle we developed, and again, remember, fear is a type of bondage. Remember our primary principle, the one we started off with. If we're in bondage, somehow we're missing grace. God gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. Can you put this all together? You see it? The arrogant ends up in fear because they're not. They're in the absence of grace. Grace is what delivers us from fear. Grace delivers us unto peace. Fear is the opposite. That's what's left over for the arrogant. So the final principle we developed last time was arrogance and fear. Arrogant people live in fear because that's what self-righteousness does to a person. It forces them to rely on their own resources as opposed to God's grace, which is given to the humble. James 4, 6, we just saw that again. For strength, confidence, peace, etc. And yet, at the end of the day, they always fail to measure up. It's this awful, dysfunctional cycle that arrogance puts people on. It's literally like a treadmill. They never measure up, so they push even harder. And then they don't measure up again, and they self-assess, and they, they run even harder. They live in fear of never measuring up. And all they have to do is just be humble. Oof. That's the difference, though. To further build upon our earlier conclusions from this message, by synthesizing with those from last time, we might arrive at the following minimally. Again, the Spirit's bringing two messages together now. Arrogance. Viewed through a godly lens, arrogance is like a type of self-induced torture. I just painted that picture for you. Arrogance is like a type of self-induced torture. Just get off the treadmill. Stop being so arrogant. Receive God's grace. If you're in bondage to fear, it means you're arrogant somehow. Somehow you've missed it in your arrogance. Look for it. Let's reflect now. In the world economy, arrogance is regularly rewarded. I think this, this, this might be the crux of the issue, right? Like, why does anybody remain arrogant? Why isn't everybody just humble and they're delivered and they get perfect peace? You know, this kind of a thing. Because, frankly, the world rewards arrogance. And we live in the world. And the world economy functions all around us. And we, 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 many of us work with people in the world. Many of us have family members in the world. Many of us, whatever, we, whatever with the world. We just have activity or uh, we're integrated in some functional way with the world. And so we brush up against the world economy day in and day out. And we have to watch while arrogance is regularly rewarded. And that's the thing that really, I think, gets us. I mean, arrogant people in this world are often the ones that get ahead, right? They just, you know, take what they think is theirs and they don't even apologize for it. And if we let this get to us, you know, we are joining in their arrogance. Though maybe not overtly but rather covertly. I need you to concentrate because this is where it gets a little tricky. If we let this get to us, we are joining in their arrogance. You must say, no, I'm not. I'm just, I just don't like their arrogance. No, 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 no. You are joining in their arrogance. It's not over like theirs might be. Yours is even harder to identify because it's covert. Remember, if you read the book that I told you, asked you to read, you'd know exactly what I'm about to say. But if not, remember, simply partaking in that system of thinking, 
In other words, investing your time and giving any credence to it whatsoever. Simply partaking in that system of thinking, the one that dominates the world economy where currency, the currency is creature credit, means you've entered into the sphere of arrogance. Otherwise, it wouldn't affect you. That's the point. To be affected by it implies that you are abiding in it some way, shape, or form or another. As if, you know, someone else's getting ahead in this world has some real value. That's the evidence of your own arrogance in the matter. That you've assigned a value to something that an arrogant person has also assigned value to. And you do so similarly with that person. That's the touch point. They're obviously arrogant because they're all chest beating over it or bragging about it or whatever, mocking God with it even. You shouldn't care less, but yet you do. You, you give that thing some influence over you because guess what? You've given it some real value, even though it really doesn't have any as far as God is concerned. As the Bible teaches us, do not be deceived. So is it fair to say that it can be tempting to look at our neighbors and wonder why in their awful arrogance they continue to receive return on investments from the world? Is it fair to say that that can be tempting to watch? Sure. Here's my, my encouragement though, don't feel bad if you even suffer from this from time to time. It happens to the best of us. For even one of the psalmists admits to failing the test for a time. Go to Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Psalm 73. Go there and we'll read this chapter and maybe it'll help you out. Again, Psalm 73, verse 1. Psalm 73, 1. Again, try to relate to this psalmist. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We just talked about this. So here we go, right? As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For the all day, for all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, and this is where he starts turning the corner, like most, you know, like we all do eventually. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. This is his turning point, you see? This is the beauty of the word of God. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire, desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Beautiful. What was the problem that the psalmist was having? The answer, the same one we all struggle with, frankly, at times. It's not always easy to watch arrogance prosper in this world. While we are guaranteed to suffer and be persecuted for doing what is right. So here's some additional encouragement for you up here on the board. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's what we just saw in Psalm 73. The psalmist never gave up on God. Let us on truth, do you see, on righteousness let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So we ought to stay the course. This is the encouragement. This is the grace gift to you in this message, my friends. Listen, we are to stay the course no matter what. And frankly, this COVID-19 situation has proven to many of you that you know, maybe just maybe you don't hold up as well as you thought you would under pressure. And that's okay as long as you're humble about it. In fact, some of you have already learned the lesson that God had meant for you. And I know this because several of you have already shared it with me. And my heart is truly encouraged by it. It just means that it's true. God's grace is sufficient. And he delivers us when we go to him, when we seek him with all our heart. For those still waffling or struggling, I'll reiterate a point from last time, and I've truncated it a little bit up here on the board. Be patient. Observe. Just sit back for a moment. Take a deep breath. Do not be hasty in your judgments. Avoid being the fool in the end. This is wisdom. James 1, 16 to 20. Be patient. Observe. Do not be hasty in your judgments. Avoid being the fool in the end. This is what wisdom looks like, my friends. Take the time that God has given you. That is another great, fantastic grace gift that you've been given. It's called time. Take it. Be patient. Observe. Do not be hasty in your judgments. What does that ever gain? When has that ever gained anything for anyone? Do not be hasty in your judgments. Avoid being the fool in the end. That's what wisdom looks like. Go to James 1.16. James 1.16. Again, this is fantastic advice, my friends. Be patient. Observe. When you get stricken with something, uh, when you're under trial or you're under pressure, be patient. Observe what's going on. Look for what God wants from you. James 1.16 Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren. But everyone must be quick to hear. In other words, be patient, observe, take things in, be quick to hear, slow to speak. Don't jump to conclusions, in other words, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I think what James was writing there as well is that if you're long to hear and quick to speak, then you're going to be quick to anger as well. That puts you on the wrong track. 
if you don't listen very well and you're quick to spout off in the mouth, you're you're going to be quick to anger, and that, that anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. This phrase, though, but everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak, you know what it requires? It requires a little thing called faith. You have to have faith in God to be patient. You have to have faith in God to sit back and take the time that he's given you to observe. Take it. That's a grace gift. Do not be hasty in your judgments. Avoid being the fool in the end. This is wisdom, and it's a grace gift. Well, we're out of time now, but the Spirit seems to have, obviously, a bit more to say on this topic of grace, and I, for one, am looking forward to hearing it. But for now, please do yourselves a favor and really synthesize what the Spirit's been saying about grace in the last few messages. It's really important. And don't forget to challenge old definitions you might still have for it, for grace floating around in that, oh, I don't know, that religious head of yours or even the fleshly head of yours. Don't forget to be grateful for all that God's done for you by grace. And don't forget that your access to that grace begins with faith. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this incredible opportunity to study your word this way. Father, we're so grateful for this grace gift that you've given us in the form of a message. Father, may we never become familiar with such things, but rather receive them for what they are, an expression of your precious love towards us. We do pray that as we take these things back to our souls, that we're delivered by them and sanctified by them. We ask that the same goes in our families and possibly as we take these principles and doctrines out to a world that someone in that world that's decaying might be affected uh, in the humility and delivered themselves. We ask all this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen.